Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. So we're going to, the whole summer, the next uh, seven weeks, we're going to spend looking at parables. Okay, Jesus' parables. He was a master teacher. He loved to teach in parables. His parables were so brilliant. Most of us, we can remember many of them, even non-Christians, people who don't go to church, can remember many of his stories, okay? Now, within that summer series, though, the next three weeks, I'm going to do a series within a series, and we're going to do a series called Treasure. Okay, and it's a study of some of, not all of, but some of Jesus' parables about wealth. And uh, I love the first one we're going to dive into today is the parable from Luke 16. So the first two weeks, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, because there's two big parables in Luke 16. Okay, and the first one we're going to look at is the parable of the dishonest manager. How many of you kind of remember that parable. Just raise your hand if you think you've heard of that parable before. Now, if you haven't, you should read your Bible. Okay, it's in the New Testament, the Gospels. I mean, those are the easy ones to read. I mean, I get it if you haven't read Leviticus 16, but Luke 16, you should try to get to, okay? But anyway, it's the parable of the dishonest manager, and so let's just dive in. Instead of me talking about it, let's talk it, okay? So Luke 16, verse 1, this phenomenal, bizarre, and somewhat shocking parable. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So this is, first of all, a parable about getting fired, okay? Hopefully that that part isn't totally practical to you already, but maybe it is. All right, so we keep going. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? Right? I've just been fired. What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. He's not really into manual labor. I can identify with that. Okay? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Man gets fired. Man doesn't want to do a manual labor job. Man comes up with a plan. Now, this is, remember, Jesus telling a parable, which is why what happens next is so interesting. What is his plan for surviving after being fired? So he called in each one of his master's debtors. We could just, in modern language, we could say the customers. He called in all of his boss's customers. And he asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? So how much do you owe? What's your bill? What do you owe my, what do you owe my boss? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. And the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, because I'm on my way out. By the way, it's based on this parable, I think, is why many bosses now, when they fire someone, they just walk you straight out. It's because of this parable. Okay? Sit down quickly and make it 450. He cuts what the guy owes his boss in half. By the way, it's a significant amount of money, roughly, I mean, it's hard to get an exact gauge on these things, but roughly in today's dollars, he has probably saved this customer about $100,000 or $130,000 somewhere in net, okay? Now, with inflation, that number is going to be going up anyway, but whatever the case, it's a lot of money, okay? I mean, this is completely dishonest. 
okay? He's cheating, he's stealing, and uh, now it's interesting, the master, instead of losing his temper in the, in the parable, is kind of like, he actually commends the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He's like, well, what, you got to hand it to the guy, right? He's smart, okay? He's shrewd is the actual word. But he commends the dishonest manager, okay? So we get that in the story, the master commends the steward, the, you know, the dishonest manager. But surely Jesus, okay? This is Jesus, the Lamb of God, the pure white lamb who never sins. Clearly now when we get to the point of this parable, the point is going to be, what a bad manager. Don't be like the manager. Don't be dishonest. Well, let's go find that part. So Jesus says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now this is what drives so many people crazy about this parable. What? Are we supposed to do with this parable? Why on earth is Jesus telling a story where the main character is dishonest and then the point of the parable is not even don't be dishonest. The point of the parable is in some way we need to be like the dishonest manager. That's not what we expect from Jesus, which by the way is also why I love Jesus so much. Most of his parables are in some way shocking, bizarre, surprising in some way. And by the way, that's the whole point of a parable. The whole point of the parables is to get past, using a story, Jesus sneaks past your defenses. Before you can put your walls up and tell him you're not listening, because you don't know where he's going, he sneaks past your defenses, then he pulls the rug out from under you, and you're left at the end with this shock, dazed, I guess I have to do something about this. Now, unfortunately, in the case of Luke chapter 16, most of us have no idea what to do with it. He's gotten past our defenses and left us absolutely, utterly confused. I rarely run into people who know how to apply this parable to their life. So we need to break this down just a little bit. Oh, I didn't expect that to move. I just about fell over. So what does Jesus want us to learn from the parable and from this dishonest manager? Well, we're going to focus in, first of all, on this word shrewd. For the people of this world, because this is Jesus summing up in verses 8 and 9 what he wants us to get from this. So he says, for the people of this world are more shrewd. Now, the Greek word there for shrewd is this word phronimos, okay? And what it means is smart, wise, okay? You're smart about taking care of your own interests, okay? And which is exactly what we see in the parable. The dishonest manager, he loses his job. He's very kind of cunning. He's smart. How am I going to take care of myself? He comes up with a plan. He carries it out. He gets himself taken care of. Now, he does it in a dishonest way, okay? And clearly, Jesus is not recommending that we be dishonest, okay? Just let's just get that out of the way. But he is telling us, look at the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Somehow, Jesus' followers, that's us, the people of the light, are meant to be more shrewd, more phronimos, more smart and wise about taking care of our interests. Now, that sounds wrong. Isn't that the opposite of everything Jesus tells us to do? That we need to be smarter about taking care of our own interests? That sounds selfish. That sounds like the opposite of what Jesus would tell us to do. Wouldn't he tell us to be less about taking care of our own interests, okay? 
only until you realize in the parable what interests Jesus wants us to take care of. And that's what he says in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus wants us to be more shrewd, and I just put in brackets, smarter and more intentional, just like the dishonest manager. Jesus wants us to be more shrewd, more smart and intentional about taking care of our, not this world's interests, but taking care of our eternal interests. In the same way that the dishonest manager, how's he going to take care of himself after he loses his job? He comes up with a plan, a shrewd plan, a smart plan, so that he can be taken care of. Jesus is saying, in the same way, not by being dishonest, but in the same way he came up with a shrewd plan to make sure he would be taken care of, you should be planning and shrewd about taking care of your eternal interests. That is the point of this parable. Now, specifically, because we could ask the question, well, how do we take care of our eternal interests? There's many different ways, right? How do we, and the Bible talks about many different ways. How do we, how do we make a difference for eternity? How do we invest in our eternity? How do we invest in what matters for the next life? And we could talk about giving our time and our money, and our service. It's all about loving people and loving God. So using our time and abilities and gifts and all sort of stuff in order to love God and love people. That's how we invest in eternity. But in this parable, he's not talking about all those different things. He's talking about one way of investing very specifically. He's talking about worldly wealth. For the people of this world are more shrewd, okay, smart and intentional in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use, look at this here, worldly wealth. This parable is talking about using worldly wealth to invest in our eternity, to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So let me sum this up now, okay? I'm just going to put a summary of what Jesus means for his hearers to get out of this parable. Here it is. In the same way, because it's a comparison, in the same way that the people of this world are shrewd, about using worldly wealth for their own gain, we followers of Jesus should be more shrewd, smart, and intentional about using worldly wealth for eternal gain. That dishonest manager made a plan. He said, I need to be taken care of once my job's gone. Jesus is saying in the same way, his followers should have a plan. What am I doing with my worldly wealth for eternal gain? What am I doing with my worldly wealth to be sure that I am taken care of in eternity? Now, there's one more thing we need to look at in this parable. There's this sense of urgency in the parable, right? This sense of urgency. Uh, the, 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 steward, the uh, dishonest manager, depends what version you're in, they're also called the steward, that's why I keep mixing up there, but the dishonest manager... I mean, Jesus could have told the parable like this. He could have said, he could have told the parable of a man who slowly over time invests and invests and invests so that he's taken care of when he's old. Then there's no crisis, there's no urgency, it's just slowly getting ready for the end. He could have told the parable that way. He doesn't tell the parable that way. He tells the parable, man loses his job, isn't going to be able to take care of himself, so in desperation, he makes a plan and he gets himself taken care of. 
okay? There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of crisis. By the way, you, that's why this parable is counted among Jesus' crisis parables. Lots of his parables are told with a sense of crisis. Something bad is about to happen. Judgment is about to come. You're about to lose everything. In fact, that sense of urgency kind of hangs over all of Jesus' ministry. Now, this is the kind of stuff I feel find really fascinating. So I just, I need to take a, just a short little rabbit trail. Okay, short little rabbit trail. Technically, this has no practical application to this sermon, but it will help you understand the New Testament way better. Okay? So where is this sense of urgency coming from that often pops out of Jesus' parables? This sense of you're about to lose. Where is your, where's your wealth coming from? You're about to lose it. What, what, you're about to lose that. It's a, the end is about to come. Now, where is this sense of urgency coming from? Now, some of you, when you read the Gospels, you might think to yourself, well, it's just coming because the end of the world is coming. That's not, it's not really the end of the world is coming. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, and it still hasn't ended. By the way, the Bible doesn't promise us that the world will end. The Bible promises that, that Jesus is going to come back and fix everything. Heal. Get rid of death. Get rid of sin. So it's not the, he's not, when Jesus has this urgency in his ministry, it's not about the end of the world, okay? He's actually talking about something very specific, and you'll see it throughout the Gospels. And by the way, once you see this and you understand one historical event, the Gospels will come alive as you're reading them, okay? See, Jesus he was not thinking of the end of the world. He wasn't thinking of his, his second coming uh, for much of the urgencies, part of that ties into it a, a little bit as well, but mostly when Jesus is talking about urgency, you see throughout the Gospels this sense of like, judgment is coming, the end is coming. He's thinking about a specific event that was hanging over the Jewish nation that he could foresee was coming. They didn't know it was coming, but he could foresee it was coming, and it would happen to the generation of people that crucified him, that would see him crucified. In the event he was foreseeing, and you'll see this throughout his ministry. I'll show you a couple of passages. And then literally the book of Luke, the Gospels, they just come alive. Is Jesus, his entire ministry, he was carrying the weight of seeing into the future to 70 AD when the Roman, uh, when the Roman armies would crush. And I mean, like they crushed Jerusalem. They, they laid siege to Jerusalem. They starved everybody. I have some pictures just to make this a little more gruesome. Whoa, that one is gruesome. Can you see that? No, not really. Oh, yeah, you guys are awesome. Thank you, PowerPoint guys, for putting that up there. That's a cool painting of the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans. Then you look at this one when they took the temple. Like, it literally, this all happened in 70 AD, by the way. Uh, the Romans laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. There was such starvation that people inside the city, some of them turned to cannibalism. It was horrific. People wished they were dead. Like literally Josephus talks about this. Tacitus talks about this. It was an awful, awful time. All of this happened less than 40 years after Jesus died. And Jesus, his whole ministry was looking forward to this event when this terrible thing would happen. I want to just show you a couple of examples. And you're going to get this sense of this urgency that he has in his whole ministry. You'll remember this famous verse, right? There's this famous verse that all of us Christians know about. The verse where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And most of us have no idea of the specific context why he's weeping. Look what he says here. As he, that's Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, this is the part, lots of us, we know this verse. This is kind of a famous verse for a lot of Christians. And we go, oh, isn't that sweet? Jesus loves the Jews so much, and they're rejecting him, and he's weeping over them because he loves them so much. By the way, I mean, generally, that is true. 
That's true. Instead, if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. But this is not just a general weeping, oh, I love them and they've rejected me. He's weeping because their rejection means, look what happens in the very next verse. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. This happened in 70 AD, less than 40 years later. Jesus repeatedly prophesies this event throughout the Gospels and encircle you. He's talking about Jerusalem and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. This happened. I mean, you saw a painting of it there. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another. He prophesies this at length in Matthew 24 because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Why is Jesus weeping in this passage? It's not just a general, oh, they've rejected me and I love them so much. He's weeping because he can see this horrible event that's going to happen to these people and their kids and their grandkids. They're going to be slaughtered. This is why at the cross, it comes up over and over again. In the cross, Luke 23, as the soldiers led him, Jesus, away, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. They're crying. And this is another passage where a lot of us Christians just miss the, the, the point this specific point of what's happening here. They're mourning and wailing for him. And I always think to myself, of course they're mourning and wailing for him. That's what we would do. That's what any of us would do if you saw someone you loved being tortured to death, humiliated, and marched naked through a city to be nailed to a tree and die. That is so horrific. You would be crying too, which is why I've never, this is what he does next. I've never really liked. Not that it really matters. He's Jesus. He can do whatever he likes. But verse 28, Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. And I've always thought to myself, even when I was a kid, I was like, well, just let them cry. Like you're being crucified. Of course they're crying. But he says, don't cry. And then he says this weird thing. And again, for many of us Christians, we don't understand the, the centrality of what happens in 70 AD, less than 40 years after he's gone, Jerusalem and the temple are gone, and Israelite history is changed, Jewish history is changed forever. He says to them, weep for yourselves and for your children. Why would he tell them to weep for themselves and their children? Why? Because this has been hanging over his head the entire ministry. Look what he goes on to say, for the time will come. He's speaking of a very specific time. It's not generalities. For a time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless, childless women, the wombs that never bore. A time that will be so bad that women with children will wish they didn't have any. It happened in 70 AD. That never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us. They will wish they were dead and to the hills cover us. And literally in history we see Josephus and others talk about it. That during that siege of 70 AD, many of the Jews, they wished they were dead. That's how bad it was. Okay, so this is the urgency. You have to understand a little bit of history. 70 AD, throughout the Gospels, you'll see all this imagery of judgment is coming. The end is about to come. This is Jesus looking ahead to something specific. These people he loves so much are going to go through something absolutely horrific. So now you come back to some of these crisis parables, like the dishonest manager. And you can see kind of the point of these. You, you'll see why Jesus repeatedly in the Gospels is like, why are you putting your faith in material goods? He can see what, those things aren't going to matter to you. Your kids and your grandkids are going to lose absolutely everything. It's going to be horrible. And so he tells these parables of, you know, a man is just about to lose his job. Or, you know, well, we'll look at a rich man loses his barns or whatever it is. But you're going to lose everything. Have you saved up in what really matters? 
Now, the question now for us is, we don't have 70 AD hanging over our heads. We're here in Canada. There's no prophecy in Scripture that prophesies Canada to suddenly fall. It doesn't mean it won't happen. It's just that it's not in the Bible. Okay? So we don't know what the future holds for us. Okay? Maybe, no doubt there are bad things in our future. But we don't have this hanging over our heads right now, nor, or a prophecy of this kind of thing hanging over our heads. So where do we get our urgency, and how does this parable and, uh, about the dishonest manager and having urgency about our worldly wealth, how does that tie into us today? Well, let's look at two places. I don't know if these are the only two places, but where does our urgency about worldly wealth come from? Two things. There may be more. We all have to stand before God someday. We don't know when we're going to die. Hey, happy summer, everybody. (laughs) We all have to stand before God someday. By the way, this truth right here, this is like kind of the central mountain of reality that should be at the core of every kind of God-believer's heart and outlook on life. Someday... Each one of us has an appointment with God. The Alpha and the Omega, the creator of the universe, the beginning and the end. Each one of us has an appointment with him. And we will literally have to give an account of how we've lived our lives. And specifically, part of that, one piece of that pie, however that works, will be what we did with our material wealth. And of course, we don't know when that day will be. So that's where our sense of urgency comes from. Now, this is where, again, so Jesus shares this parable. Dishonest manager. There's this sense of urgency. You're going to stand before God someday. And now some of us, the anxiety starts to go up, right? It's like, oh, I hate these kinds of messages. I hate these kinds of passages. I hate these kinds of parables. Because you just feel guilty already. It's like, I already feel guilty. I already feel like I'm not doing enough. Like, is it okay the fact that most of us drove here in a vehicle today? And many of us have two vehicles. And most of us have, compared to most people in the world, a pretty nice house. Are any of those things okay in light of this? Should we all be living in cardboard boxes and everything that comes in just goes out to somebody else? Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus had just given us a number already. Have you ever thought that? Like at the end of your parable about the dishonest manager, at the end of your parable about the rich man and Lazarus, which we'll cover next week, at the end of your parable about the rich man and his barns, just tell me what I have to give so I don't have to go to hell. Right? Like what is it? 10, 15, 30%, $10,000? Like just give me a number, Jesus, and I'll do it. He never just gives us a number. He wants us to wrestle with these things. He wants it to be a heart thing, which is small comfort to many of us with anxiety issues, and there's lots of those these days. Because are we doing enough? So how do, we, how do we reconcile with this? How do we leave from here and not just be terrified? What's reasonable? And this is where, as a preacher and a teacher, I feel a responsibility how, to give us something, to not just send us all home, and this is what I've seen happen so often when I preach. And uh, it just has made me despair at times. Because you preach a message, and of course you have one kind of person in mind, the bad kind of person. 
none of whom come to church here physically. Some might be online. Okay? But you have the idea of this person who's just, they're a bad person, and they need this message to just kick him in the pants and get around. But then what you find out when you start preaching is, those people never feel convicted anyway. They don't care what I preach or what anybody else preaches. And all the good people who are already doing too much hear that sermon, and then they go, oh, I'm not doing enough. So what do we do with this? And then there's the person who's just careless. They just don't even know. Hey, I gave $20 to a GoFundMe thing like a month ago. I'm pretty generous. There's not a clue in the world. Like, how do, like, what's generous? What does that mean to Jesus? What does success look like? So I feel a responsibility to, to, in the last part of this message, to just give us something to think about, to get our, to dig our fingers and teeth into. Practical. Now, the dangerous thing about practical is Jesus didn't give us a number. So you've got to remember that everything I say from now till we say amen and leave is some of my ideas, hopefully wise, okay? But none of these are laws. If Jesus wanted to give us a law, he would have done it. He didn't give us a law. But I feel responsibility to say, okay, well, what's the context? What's sort of the bullseye? Like, is, is 20 bucks generous and God's happy? Is it, is it everything I own? Like, where, where do I, what do I do with this? Okay? So let me give you some thoughts. Okay? Uh, a starting point. Not a law. Okay? Let me give you a potential starting point. Have I given enough disclaimers? <laughs> Have I given enough caveats? Okay? If anybody goes out of here feeling guilty or saying that I... Okay, let's just switch the screen, okay? <laughs> let's talk about this number 10%. Now, this is a number a lot of... Now, notice all the caveats I have in writing. Okay? A potential italics benchmark for thinking about giving for the average person. Not a law. Some can give much more. Some cannot give so much. Let's talk about 10%. Now, there are lots of places where they teach that 10% is actually the Bible commands you have to tithe 10%. So, and, and I wish it did say that. Because it makes it way easier for preachers to make money, okay? <laughs> it just makes it a lot easier, okay? Here's the, here's the sad truth for preachers everywhere. This is not a law in Scripture. There's nowhere in the, in the Bible that says you have to give 10%. And the whole idea that tithe means 10% is actually also not in the Bible. Nor in the New Testament does it say how much a Christian has to give. Zero. Zilch. And if you go to tithe, now the word tithe is in the Old Testament a whole bunch of places. But guess what? If you actually study tithes in the Old Testament, there's a whole bunch of different tithes. Some of them include killing your animals and, and bringing them to the temple. So try following those. But if you add up the percentages of all the different tithe laws in the Old Testament, it's not even 10%. It's somewhere around 20 to 23%. Okay? So maybe, actually, let's just change the number. I think that's good. <laughs> let's do, as a law, everyone must give 23% to CrossFit. No. Okay. What is this 10% number, then, if it's not a law in Scripture? Okay? I'm trying to give people teeth of something to think about. This is a number that, over the last century, in our culture, society, and economic system has for many people who are somewhere in the average or above, is actually a great number to think about for how you give. It's not a law. There, do you know that there are tens of millions of people around the world right now who live on $2 or less a day? 
Do you think, and some pastors preach this, those people are required to tithe 10%. They can barely feed themselves. It's actually a sin to teach that kind of thing to very poor people. They can't afford to give anything. They need Jesus followers to be giving to them, not them giving to Jesus followers. Okay? And the other reason that we shouldn't make this a law is that there's lots of people who can give far more to this. There's people who have abundance to be able to give more. And when they stand before God, they say, hey, I gave you 10%. He's like, I never gave you that law. Oh, shucks. Because it could be more. So we all have to wrestle with it. But this is a starting point because some people are like, well, I don't know how much to give. I don't know where to start. I gave to a GoFundMe. Is that good enough? Well, let's start with, for the average person in our current day and culture, 10% has proven itself as sort of a wise number, not a law. It's a great goal to shoot for. It's enough that for many people, it's enough that you feel the pinch, you feel the sacrifice, and also that it makes a difference. When thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians give 10%, it makes a difference. By the way, you'll notice I haven't even said where this 10% should go, because unfortunately the Bible also doesn't say that. It should be some combination of the hungry, the poor, your local church family, missions. It should go somewhere but there is no law. But this is something that has been shown. This is wise. This is sacrificial. This is something that will make a difference. By the way, I should just tell you something else in this series on treasure. Did you know, to make a local church happen, so quite apart from law, quite apart from guilt, did you know that just to make a local church happen in this culture, and this is again why laws don't work from scripture because there's so many different cultures. You go to Africa, you can have a local church for cheap. I was just talking to a missionary from Africa the other day and you can meet under a, you know, just a tin roof and you can meet out in the open. And here in Canada, guess what? How many of you would come to Crossview and be a church family with me if we were meeting out in the open? There might be a couple of weeks in May or June. Today's pretty decent. And there'd be no time between October and April. Like, <laughs> see, in this culture, in this climate, guess what you need? Remember, we looked before at Hebrews 10? Don't neglect meeting together. There's something deeply encouraging for all of us spiritually about the discipline of public gathering. There's something deeply important for our children to be out there together with other kids in a public gathering. There's something beautiful with the public gathering. Guess what? To have a public gathering in our climate, in our culture, costs millions of dollars. Dang. And just to run the building costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then you have to pay people like me who don't have the strength to dig. <laughs> to do the one thing they can actually do in this world. Right? So guess what? That all costs money. So guess what? Again, this is not a law. Not a law. But do you know to have a local church in our climate and culture and stuff basically takes that group of people who are thinking of it as, this is my church, I, I want this church to go, I want my kids to grow up here. It basically takes everybody who thinks of it as their church giving 5 to 10% of their income just to make it happen. That's not a law from Jesus. 
That's just the reality of how things work in our climate and our culture. So that's one option then that we need to think of. Well, let's finish this and get even more practical. To be a shrewd giver, back to the dishonest manager, for the people of this world are more shrewd, smart and planned in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth so you can be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Being a 5% or 8% or 10% or 20%, whatever it is that God's calling you to and what you can give. And by the way, to give so much that you have nothing is not God's plan for you. To give so much that you can't pay your bills is not God's plan for you. To give so much, did you know that it's actually not a sin to enjoy some of the comforts of this wonderful country we live in? Actually, not a sin. Because we all do it. There's very few hermits here today. None of that is bad. The point is, are we smart and planning to also not just take care of ourselves, but also invest for our eternal reward? I think one of the biggest reasons many Christians can't give more is not because they're selfish. And this is one of the things, as pastors, we often want to beat the sheep you're all selfish, you're all selfish, you're all selfish. We've all been told in North America a million times we're selfish. What if the bigger issue isn't that we're selfish, it's that we don't know what to do or how to do it? And what if one of the biggest reasons we don't give more is something called waste? Something called waste. Do you know that if you don't have some kind of a plan for your money, it's like putting a screen door on the bottom of your fishing boat. You're going to get water through all, water just going to be running in through all kinds of holes. Did that make any sense to any of you? I don't think it would. Someone's like, I got a screen door on the bottom of my fishing boat. Shows how much I know. I don't ever go fishing. When you don't have some kind of a plan for your money, guess what? It just goes out everywhere. You just lose trickles. And it just doesn't feel bad. You're just living. You're just living. You're just living. You're just living. But what if you could harness, Jesus talks about being shrewd. He told this parable to move us to action. To be smart and to be intentional, just like that dishonest manager, with worldly wealth for eternal reward. When you don't have a plan, when you're not shrewd with your money, guess what? You lose it in all kinds of little leaks everywhere. I bet you one of the biggest things that could increase giving in North America is not some magic pill that would take away selfishness. It'd be a magic pill that people could figure out how to do a budget in a way that works for them in their life. They figured out where the waste is, and they just turn more of that waste to generosity. Your standard of living doesn't even go down. You're just funneling more into eternal. You're being shrewd. When you don't have a plan for how much you want to spend on your groceries... You just go and you just buy whatever's there at the supermarket and kind of have a general idea and blah, 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 you do it. When you have a plan for how much you want to budget on something like groceries, for example, by the way, you don't eat less, you eat better for less. Isn't that true? Just a little bit of a plan. So here's a challenge. Things to think about. By the way, remember, did Jesus tell you in this parable to make a budget? No. Chris told you that. Jesus told you to be more shrewd. 
Chris is giving you some ideas for how to be more shrewd. Always differentiate between what Jesus said and Chris said. That is a big gap. Just ask LaDawn after, okay? Here's some practical thoughts. Challenge for this week. Chris's challenge. But these are things that maybe help us take up the challenge of what Jesus has given us in this parable. If you're not regularly giving, and again, I'm not just saying to Crossview. We'll talk more about where and how. Make a goal for your giving. Someday you're going to stand before Jesus. He's not asking for you to live in a cardboard box. But do you have a goal for giving to get up somewhere for what's reasonable if you're in a reasonable average position in our country? If you don't have a budget, start tracking your spending. Find an app. By the way, you'll find some waste. I'm not here to flog certain programs or whatever, me and La, but me and LaDon have an app on our phone. Like, once I got into this phone, I am in all the way. <laughs> I resisted, 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 but once I jumped in, I jumped in with both feet. We have an app on here called Good Budget. You can email me about it. I'm sure there's 10 out there that are way better, but it's amazing. We just entered all in there. You track all of your spending, and you know where it is. You make a budget. You make a plan. Guess what? Oh, some of you might find $30, $100, $200 every month that is just leaking out. What if you turn that into the kingdom? Imagine standing before Jesus and going, I was shrewd. I was like the dishonest manager and not the dishonest part. Number three, see if you can find any waste in your monthly spending that you can turn to giving. 30, 100, who knows? Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Next week, we're going to look at the rich man and Lazarus. Oh, that's going to be so fun. In the meantime, Lord Jesus, thank you for the parable of the dishonest manager. Thank you for the reminder that someday we're going to stand before you and give an account of how we lived. Would you help each one of us, wherever we're at, we want to stand before you and not have to be petrified that we didn't pay attention to some of the things you told us. We want to stand before you with a good feeling. We did invest for eternity. We did take care of the poor and the hurting. We were generous and we were shrewd and intentional about it. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do. Bless us with more and more joy and more and more love in our Crossview family here. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca. 